Vagrant's Court. Someone oh, I own that. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. Eight dollars, please. <laughs> Ooh. And the quote says, taxing things that can be hidden makes sneaks and liars. The single tax has no place for spies and informers. Ooh. <laughs> wow. I like A lot that. of acid in yeah. this. Yeah. I do not. Sorry. Oh, okay. So you give me I'll five. change if I want. Most folks are familiar with these sounds playing a game of Monopoly with family and friends. But this isn't Monopoly. It's The Landlord's Game by activist game designer Elizabeth McGee. And it's one piece in the puzzle of the true history of the most popular board game in the world. In this episode, we'll explore the secret history of Monopoly with a journalist who started writing what she thought would be a simple story, but instead found a forgotten socialist movement, a feminist game designer, a lefty professor, and some punk rock Quakers. Welcome to Fun Games with Serious People, where we play and then think about how games help us make sense of the world. Today's fun game is the landlord's game, and our serious person is Mary Pallon, journalist and author of the best-selling book, The Monopolists, Obsession, Fury and the scandal behind the world's favorite board game. Mary, welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm so thrilled you could join us because uh, most people, they have a game of Monopoly sitting somewhere in their family room or uh, on the shelf. um, And they kind of think of the story of Monopoly as, uh, you know, something that they read on the box. And your, your, your book actually begins with that story of Monopoly's invention by a Depression-era father who tinkered in his basement during uh, a time when uh, he was out of work and had to find something to occupy his two children. Um, and it turns out that that's not the real story. No, no. And I grew up with that story, too. I grew up playing Monopoly in Oregon, and it was cold and rainy, so we had a lot of indoor uh, indoor recess time, so to speak. And my family played at Christmas, but we played all the time. So I thought that was the story as well. That was the version that was in my game box. And in 2009, I was working at the Wall Street Journal, and I was covering business and finance. And 2009 was a really depressing time for the economy. And I was going to mention in passing oh, you know, Monopoly was invented during the Great Depression because people were drawing a lot of comparisons. And I was looking around, I was looking around uh, to confirm that and I couldn't find anything. And I was really frustrated. I kept finding things that felt very inconsistent or dates weren't matching. Um, And so I kind of wandered into this whole story just as accidentally as a lot of the readers of the book. Uh, I had no idea that it was going to become a book, let alone a thing we would be sitting here talking about all this time later. That's amazing. Much of your work and much of your journalism covers the intersection between sports and business, uh, which is a really interesting kind of Venn diagram. And Monopoly, while not a sport, is a game, right? I would say it's kind of in the nerd sport genre. I mean, I started covering just business in Wall Street. The Monopolist kind of grew out of that reporting. And then I only covered sports, really. And then now it's kind of a mix of the two. But I think there's a thread. I get accused of being kind of all over the place as a writer. But I think there's a there's definitely connective tissue between those worlds. There are, you know, worlds of testosterone and sweat and competition and scandal and money and power and these themes, I think that exist uh, in, in both beats quite a bit. 
So it's fun to kind of weave them all together. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that sweat uh, <laughs> in terms of the invention of Monopoly. Uh, and, you know, we don't want to bury the lead here. So so what is the true story of Monopoly? The true story. So Monopoly was not invented by Charles Darrow in the 1930s. It was invented by a woman named Lizzie McGee. She received a patent for her game called The Landlord's Game in 1904. It was played pretty extensively for 30 some odd years by a who's who of left wing America all over the country. And it was a version of that game that was uh, that Daryl learned and then sold to Parker Brothers. And then Parker Brothers uh, engaged in this, uh, you know, some people would say cover up, some people would say misleading version of, the, of, of events. You know, you can you can decide how you want to frame it. Um, that kind of pr- propped up Daryl as the inventor. Uh, Lizzie McGee died in relative obscurity in 1948. Most people didn't know she was the inventor until this very unlikely character, Ralph Onspach, uh, in the 70s kind of unearthed this whole story. So my book is the story of Ralph Onspach, who kind of became this monopoly detective and his own legal battle. Uh, and then Lizzie McGee, what happened and what happened in the company in the 30s. Amazing. Um, I'm, I think, you know, most of, uh, most of the world didn't fully understand the story until your book was published. It's a bestseller, and it certainly broke the story in a big way. But as you mentioned, you know, you as an investigative journalist, uh, you thought there was something a little fishy about that, <laughs> and it, that or- originating story uh, of Monopoly. And that led you to Ralph Onspach. Who's Ralph Onspach? So Ralph is is a quite a character. Uh, Ralph wa- in the early '70s was working as an economics professor in the Bay Area, and he was playing Monopoly with his two sons and talking about monopolies with his students. Uh, he was really frustrated because at the time, you know, this is the the heyday of the OPEC oil cartels and. A lot of this was in the news in a way I think we forget about today. And he wanted, he plays the game Monopoly with his kids and he realizes it's not very philosophically pleasing to him that, you know, the, if you think about it, the, he he makes this case that Monopoly is actually not a good thing to play with kids because it teaches, you know, them that they have to clobber everybody else to be successful. And so he creates this game called Anti-Monopoly because he kind of wants to teach a different narrative around that. Um, and he, he starts selling it and it's a hit, you know, people in the Bay area love it. It kind of hits the right tone. You know, this is a time of great, you know, political cynicism, um, in our country, um, which feels resonant particularly today. And it's not long before he gets a cease and desist note from, uh, General Mills, which owned Parker brothers at the time saying you can't make your anti-monopoly games. And I think most of us, if we received a, a legal notice like this, we'd probably be terrified and we would stop doing whatever it was. Uh, that, that, you know, conjured that up. But Ralph is very, he's wired very differently. And he says, wait, you can't have Monopoly Monopoly. That seems silly. So he starts looking into it and wants the right to make his anti-Monopoly games. Uh, and it, in that process, he accidentally comes upon Lizzie McGee and the whole story. That's incredible. So uh, this sort of buried history actually begins uh, in the 70s, you know, during a time of uh, also great economic upheaval. Um, but if we were to rewind then, then as he uncovers Lizzie McGee's story, we have to go all the way back to, as you said, 1904, when the game was patented. What was Lizzie McGee designing this game about? Well, and even earlier than that, in some ways, I felt like the first part of my book uh, you know, Ralph and his lawsuit, there's no doubt we wouldn't be sitting here talking about this if not for Ralph and the research uh, he did in that lawsuit. Uh, but I felt like nobody had done a Lizzie McGee biography. And I felt like I had, you know, enough information about her to show her contributions through Ralph's prism. But I wanted 
to make the first few chapters just kind of a look at her life and her times. And I felt like I didn't really have a context for what it meant for a woman to get a patent in 1904 for a game. And it turns out that that was just as unusual as you would imagine. Less than 1% of patents were going to women. The head of the patent office at the time, you know, would say these things like, well, if you're a woman, don't even bother applying because we won't approve you, which I guess is honest. Um, and notably, you know, McGee uses her initials when she applies for hers. Uh, and I, I, I wanted to know who she was, like how... How, what informed her politics? What informed her thinking? And uh, she was born, you know, in the mid 1800s. And her father, James McGee, was extremely politically active. And he also was a very influential newspaper owner in Illinois, where they grew up, where she grew up. And he wasn't just political. I mean, he had he was one of the early brains of the Republican Party. And he had traveled with Abraham Lincoln during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So I think it's really important to understand that she you know, she is a product of her times, but also her own, um, her own family and her own, uh, you, you know, some of the things that she was exposed to. So she becomes a huge follower of Henry George. And I was also fascinated by this, you know, I was not an economics major in college. And Henry George was a name I wasn't familiar with, but he was a huge deal in his time, um, which he published this book called Progress and Poverty that was a huge bestseller. And there were these single tax clubs that sprouted up all over. Uh, and the single tax movement, they were really concerned with taxing land and only land. Um, but they have all these interesting overlaps with other causes. You know, they were um, abolitionists and believed in racial equality. They There was a lot of um, overlap with the suffragette movement. This is before women could vote. I would definitely put Lizzie McGee in that category as well. So she creates this game as a way to teach people about Henry George. Uh, and Henry George, you know, by the time she receives this patent, she, he, he had died. And a lot of the momentum of his movement had died with him. He was known as a very charismatic speaker. So it's interesting, too, that she's someone who had really, you know, put so much of herself into this movement. And even when a lot of people were going away from it, she, you know, kind of doubles, doubles down on it. So Mary and I went to the source. We played the landlord's game to try to understand not just how close the game was to Monopoly, but how Henry George's ideas were expressed through the gameplay. And to make it more fun, we invited some seriously smart friends to play with us. One of those friends is Finn Brunton. His official title is Associate Professor in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication at NYU. But he also happens to be an expert in the culture of money, which he explores in his book, Digital Cash, The Unknown History of the Anarchists, Technologists, and Utopians Who Created Cryptocurrency. Finn helped us get a handle on Georgism, how important these ideas were to early 20th century society, and people like Lizzie McGee. But part of what's also kind of fascinating to me, both about Georgism, but also about this game, is that, as I understand it, part of what Georgism was was part of historically was also all the negotiations around what the real basis of value should be mm -hmm. and how you would sort of find ways to either protect or encourage that. And I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we can see traces of that, not just in the idea of taxing land, but doing that in order to protect to protect labor mm -hmm. as the like actual yeah. source yeah. of yeah of wealth and to to kind of find ways to sort of wall that off mm. from being penalized or taxed in any way. In addition to Finn, Mary and I invited Alexander King to play the landlord's game with us. You know how every board game has to have a player who doesn't mind being the rules maven? Well, Alexander was our rules maven. He also later in the game became a chicken thief, but uh, you'll have to watch the full gameplay footage for that story. Early on in the game, I think it was actually in my first move, I landed on a space called Speculation. 
and I had no idea what to do. Alexander, we need your help with this. Yeah. <laughs> if um if a player's throw would bring him, it it always uses male pronouns. So my my uh, notes, so it's not me. Uh, uh, the space. It's a game you, designed by a woman, though. So yeah. you may refuse to move there. By the way, you can stay on Mother Earth, where we. Where, uh-huh. So oh you don't God. have to go to speculation if you don't want to. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But if you and then you just skip your turn. Uh, but if you elect to play, mm-hmm. then the ownership of the speculation card for broker's license is determined as per title deed. So right. you've already you, got it. So you're the yeah. broker. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so if you're if you're in, then uh-huh. you're gonna you're gonna gamble. I'm gonna you're gonna speculate. Right. Yeah. Gonna speculate. <laughs> so you, buy some penny stocks. A, a, yeah. There's a ten dollar ante, uh-huh. which you'll put into the miscellaneous pile. I guess you just return it to the bank. Mm-hmm. You'll throw the dice. Okay. And if you <laughs> yeah. If you throw a double, you win a hundred bucks. Ooh. An eleven, ninety, ten, da 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 da. But if you roll and then oh ten percent of your winnings go to the broker. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I've got and to pay. Yeah. If you roll a three or a four, then the broker is caught in a skin game. Oh. You win nothing. Yeah. And but you go to jail. And you go to jail. Oh, yes. I'm doing this. This is amazing. It's a casino spot. Yeah. It feels like a lot of rules tied to one square, but they're clearly worth it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm yeah. definitely doing yeah. this. This sounds exciting. And you so know what? We're all going to learn. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to take a, I'm going to make some change here. Can I interest you in some standard oil stuff? <laughs> exactly. I do love that the lines between stocks and gambling are blurred in this game in a way that feels like a like a dig on Wall Street. Totally, totally. Yeah. Got a bunch of subprime mortgages. Yeah, exactly. So then do you Yeah, they are really So yeah, so you roll. Okay. All right, I'm rolling. Yeah. And then we'll see what you get. Yeah. Come on, snake eyes. Come on, doubles. I wanna roll doubles. Oh! oh. <laughs> Skin, game. Skin, game. Skin game! I lost my $10. Yeah, I lost my license and I wow. am in jail. Wow, wow. This Which is a pretty good you start. You started in jail. Yeah. Alexander's not only really good at understanding rules, he's a game designer, which kind of explains his superior rules cognition. He teaches courses in game design, including math and economics for games at Parsons and NYU. Before working in games, Alexander was an analytics consultant working in finance and e-commerce. So yeah, another seriously smart person to play the landlord's game with. And I think, and it's something I didn't appreciate until reading the rules for the landlord's game that the monopoly of monopoly I had always read as the the railroads or the or the the Owning road. like a, yeah. Right. Like a yeah. color that, set. Yeah. But the, the the critique here, the monopoly is land. That like that's yeah. the that land is this natural monopoly and so is a problem. That it creates this economic inefficiency that here in, in Manhattan the land is just worth more because we all want to be here, but it's not it's like it's it's inalienable. Like it, it it's just mm-hmm. its physical place. And so it is this economic problem to, to solve. And that it's like, yeah, all of it is monopoly. Like, we're, we're by owning land, you're a monopolist. So it's kind of, you know, it's like a millionaire tax. It's, mm. it's actually trying to level the playing field a little bit yeah. during the Gilded Age. Yeah. Uh, but that makes me. sense. Yeah. Oh, Lizzie. All right. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that my labor upon Mother Earth will produce wages. 
And it did. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I'm now in the pipe. Driving in your automobile down <laughs> yeah. the pipe, for yeah. which I have a toll, which oh, is $4. Oh, fancy. Yeah. And it is, yes, there's there's a lot of the, the like procedural rhetoric at, at play here that the, the only way that money enters the system is from natural labor. Like yeah. that you have to do something else besides collecting rent. Otherwise, we're just trading the same money between ourselves. And the yeah. ratio yeah. of how yeah. much you earn from wages compared to your rent mm. is so much greater. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. On that note. A lot of games from the late 1800s and early 1900s had some kind of moral lesson or kind of a built-in pedagogy. For example, the popular board game Life, which probably shared a shelf with Monopoly when you were a kid, started out as the checkered game of life, which modeled good and bad choices leading either to happy old age or ruin. As the game designers at the table, Alexander and I were really impressed with the design of the landlord's game, especially how the game switches from the monopolist rules where everybody's a greedy, craven landlord to the single tax system, which happens once a majority of players vote to switch it. This is kind of brilliant, right? Because it takes the game Monopoly, which we all know well and we all remember our little brothers becoming completely awash in cash and uh, slowly bleeding us dry. Well, it gives players an opportunity to say, hey, let's change this system that really isn't working for me. However, the landlord's game, as it evolved and as the game kind of morphed into Monopoly, Uh, lost that second kind of fairer set of rules, the Henry George rules. And it's the monopolist version that lived on. I talked to Mary about this. I think one of the things that's brilliant about games then and now is we learn by doing, both kids and adults. And I think, you know, these earlier, let's call them earlier loosely, there's something really powerful about the role-playing aspect of that. And it's interesting that McGee also she had done some theatrical work and she had done some writing. And I think that, you know, now we talk about RPGs and D&D and role-playing games and things like that. And But all games, I think there's a, there's a fantasy element to being able to act out what you do. And I mean, I'm a huge reader and I love books and I, you know, have spent and will continue to spend a ton of time reading. But there is something really powerful about being in those roles and moving around versus reading, say, a tax policy paper. So I think there's something really ingenious about that. And her applying the, kind of wedding those two things the the political philosophy she was trying to teach and then the intoxication of playing playing a game yeah no it's really incredible and i think most of us when we think of our contemporary games of monopoly we think about that kind of that drama you know like right right <laughs> well, it's the cutthroat, the <laughs> like opposite version right that the monopolist rule set so she makes these two rule sets the monopolist one takes off and that the purpose of that was to so in some ways you could say like she was successful because when you think about Monopoly we have this image of you know Uncle Pennybags and capitalism and the kind of brutality of it which um, is kind of the opposite of what she was trying to teach but also exactly what she was trying to teach if that if that makes sense yeah no that totally does and um, one of the things I think is really interesting is you describe the challenges of a woman at the time getting a patent Lizzie McGee really being ahead of her time really pushing to get her you know, her intellectual property recognized um, is that there's now a game called Ms. Monopoly. And you wrote about mm-hmm. that recently in The New Yorker. Yes. Uh, that, <laughs> that, 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 you know, you had kind of an interesting take on it. Can you describe your perspective on Ms. Sure. Monopoly? Sure. So I, um, 
in the process of writing my book, uh, I approached it just as if I was writing a long Wall Street Journal or New York Times article. So that said, I reached out to Hasbro, who now owns Parker Brothers, sent them a lot of fact-checking questions. They didn't respond to them. That's fine. That's their prerogative. Uh, but last fall, I, I get the news about the Ms. Monopoly game coming out. And at first, I was really excited because I thought, maybe this is the moment. You know, this is the moment. And what a moment, right? You know, the conversation around, the conversation around gender and particularly women and how we've told women's stories has changed so radically just even since my book came out in 2015 um, that, you know, it's been interesting to kind of see the Lizzie McGee story snowball from what a decade ago people told me was a conspiracy theory to then became a published book, which now has become, you know, it kind of has a life of its own, which is well beyond what I did. And that's exciting. But um, so Ms. Monopoly, I, I just thought, wow, well, especially because now it's way more accepted that she invented this game this is going to be it. And um, it, it was weirder than that, actually. So I started looking at, you know, the, the game and the design. And there's, you know, the, on the cover of the box, this woman with like her Starbucks cup and her blazer and the the squares, you know, instead of the properties that we all think of in Atlantic City, there are different inventions or creations that women have contributed. And already before I could even open my mouth, uh, Twitter had a field day with this. You know, there were um, I think shapewear was one of those squares, um, you know, cho chocolate chip cookies. I mean, it was really and I, I just remember thinking like I were like she was still missing like that Monopoly wasn't one of those. So so squares. yeah, I, I, you know? I, I've looked at it recently and I think that f the majority of the quote unquote properties, which are inventions by women, are very domestic. You know, the Toll House cookie, as, as right, you mentioned. Right, right, um, But nowhere is Monopoly as one of those properties. Right, in the, in right. McGee. And I think that the, you know, even if you don't know the history of the game, one of the comments, the threads of comments that I thought was so interesting was the, the idea of using feminism as a marketing tool, especially, you know, when in the games community, and I'm not a game designer, but I try to follow it, like you have things like Gamergate and you have, there's been so many issues related to who's creating games, who's paying for them. A lot of the issues that women in tech have talked about in terms of VC funding. I mean, this is an industry that is growing rapidly and that's very exciting, both, you know, tabletop and video games. And, you know, the average, um, I was just looking at data recently, you know, the average gamer is in their 30s. It's something like 40 some odd percent women now. I mean, so it's not a pimply teenage dude anymore and it hasn't been. And yet we still kind of have these, you know, there's a tone deafness sometimes to, to how some of this carries through. So I think with Monopoly, which is, um, you know, there there are these games like Fortnite that are huge and things and, you know, these really um, impassioned communities around them. But Monopoly is a different game in that everyone knows Monopoly. Everyone knows it. And so to see this thing that you don't even have to be, have to be a gamer to, to know about kind of reframed this way, I think, um, I don't know. I, I just talked to a lot of people who were very disappointed about it. Um, but what was very different about the release of Ms. Monopoly versus even the release of my book a couple years ago is I didn't have to correct people. Everybody got it right. The Washington Post story, the Times, like all these news outlets that reach out to me to cover this got the story right. Whereas in 2015, I would go to, you know, I'd go around the country with this book and talk to people and they'd say, oh, Monopoly, that's a game that a guy invented during the Great Depression. So I think it was, it's also a very 2019 story to me that now this like company narrative of how things went, um, people, you know, there's a few keystrokes away to get 300 pages about it. That's right. With full end notes. So I think that that's also changing how we look at the backstory of how anything is created, paintings, movies, uh, games, et cetera. Don't believe the hype. 
Double leave the hype, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought that I thought that it was a really great thing to point out that uh, uh, as far as we know, has Hasbro recognized Lizzie McGee's contributions to the game of Monopoly that we have today? When I did my New Yorker piece, I reached out to them for comment and they... I kind of got this comment. I mean, you couldn't go to newyorker.com and find the piece, but um, I remember it being kind of to the effect of they acknowledge she exists as a human, which nobody was really disputing, but the words Lizzie McGee invented Monopoly are not there. So I guess you know, maybe that's progress, question mark. Um, but I, I think that it's, it's fascinating to me that this was a long time ago and I think these stories matter. Um, you know, I, I've been really inspired by... You know, I, I think I was so holed up in writing the book and trying to get the documents straight and stuff that I didn't even think about you're so introverted when you're doing these projects that when it goes out in the world, you have no idea who your audience is going to be. And it's been really cool to see, you know, like girl coders really latch onto the story and women who are pursuing invention and patent. And so I think those North Stars really matter. You know, I was I just watched Little Women this week and I was thinking about Joe March and how like Joe March for me as a little girl was a huge character. Like the idea that like you could write a book as a girl and like that was a big deal. And I think that those things really matter. So it's not just about, you know, your own political this, that or the other. It's that you just, I mean, I, my job as a journalist is just to tell things as they are the best I can to get things right. And so whenever people push against what the truth is, which Laura knows we live in a big era of that, I'm always interested in kind of the, the thinking behind that. Especially because yeah. it's such an interesting story. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting at least. Well, you really, I mean, in in the book, I, the book, by the way, is an incredible page turner, um, both in how you depict Lizzie McGee as this really ahead of her time f feminist uh, game designer um, who even at one point puts out an ad in the paper to uh, as a as a young slave or or something. Yeah, to just like, yeah. So she auctions herself off as a slave to kind of make a comment about equal pay, basically, and how women are treated. And um, she had also worked as a stenographer, which was one of the few jobs that was open to women. And that this is before women could vote. I mean, it's crazy to think about. And, you know, that you you that was risky. That was very, very risky. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. No, she just and she got a lot of uh, got a lot of messages back, a lot of some offers, a lot of backlash. I think that it yeah. cre created some controversy. Um, and if you were to sort of draw a dotted line from there to Gamergate and <laughs> and other moments when women have really stood up to say, hey, this is not fair. Um, or, hey, I'm a creative person and I make things. Um, you were able to really, I think, bring bring her her to life in the book um and i think that like you know the, the screenwriter in me is always wondering about the the emotional side of what goes and you don't know what's in anybody's head let alone somebody who's long deceased but i think that feeling of not being heard you know to bring back to playing monopoly as a kid right like that's something all of us can connect with that feeling of like no one listening or being ignored and i think that with her and ralph i mean for me because i hadn't written a book before the jump from article to book that's one of the gifts of having so much more time to work on something like this is you start to try and really, you can't hold a reader's attention for that long without really thinking about what the psychology is like for people and what that, what that must've felt like. Um, so, so yeah. And I, I felt like, um, I think it was Doris Kearns Goodwin who she was, I'm going to get this wrong, but she said something about how she, she was thinking of doing a book about Hitler, but she was like, I can't wake up with Hitler every day, but I can wake up with like the Roosevelt's or Lincoln. And I, Definitely in writing this book felt like I could wake up with, you know, Ralph and Lizzie and these people because it was kind of interesting to think about like who they were and 
all the stuff that was happening to them. And both were really at the, you know, they, they had political statements to make through their games and through their work. Yeah, um, for so sure. they're kindred spirits in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, Ralph was very generous with his time and answered God only knows how many questions for me. And he was so, um, I thought that was like a fascinating irony is that he was bringing the game back to its political origins without really even realizing it. Um, And I love that idea of um, people being connected through time who never really met at all. And they definitely hadn't met. And that one of the things I thought about a lot while writing the book was like the red violin, the idea of like an object kind of passes through history because the time span of this project was you know, the mid 1800s to today, and it's still going on, right? So, you know, nobody, as much as I want to believe in immortality, I don't think any of us can can last that long, but Monopoly has. So (laughs) certainly has. Um, Back to Ralph Onsbach. I one one of the things that that, you know, I think I, I devoured the book in a day. And the part where the pages started really blurring by for me was when uh, we had this sort of David and Goliath legal (laughs) case. It becomes this incredible legal procedural uh, in the middle of it um, about Ralph Onsbach, uh, the David taking on the Goliath of uh, uh, Parker Brothers um, in order to make his little indie indie game anti-monopoly. What did did Ralph have to do and how did that case kind of unfold? Ralph, well, he is, he would use terms like little guy versus big guy. Like, I can't take credit for, he knew he was David going up against uh, Goliath this whole time. So, God, well, where to begin? So, he went through many, many lawyers. Uh, a lot of lawyers didn't want to represent the case. Um, they didn't want to take it on contingency and legal bills. Now, more than ever, feels like a, a theme a lot of people can connect with. This was obviously very stressful for his, you know, his marriage and his kids. He had these two boys who were growing up. Um, and at one point, he's offered uh, a really significant settlement um, to take a giant lump of money and end the case. But uh, as part of it, he wouldn't be allowed to talk about Monopoly's origins. And at this point, he had been traveling around the country and getting these original players to talk and gathering up these boards. And he turns it down. And he's a huge falling out with his attorney at the time over this. So he's one of those people that he just doesn't he doesn't he doesn't quit. Like, he's yeah. Just, He's in his 90s now and he's still not quitting. You know, he's um, and I, I kept asking him about that because I think that it's I think we all do this to some degree. But Ralph really just thought like this is what everybody would do. And I would say, like, I don't I don't know about that, Ralph. Like, I don't know. Like, I think a lot of people would have stopped at these key points. But um, he he also talked a lot about his childhood. I mean, he was a, a Jewish kid who grew up in Danzig um, and had the timing been different. I don't think he would have survived World War Two. And, you know, a lot of his family were gone and he came to the United States as a child, as a refugee. And like that fighter mentality was just part of his his framing. And he kind of scrapped his way through his career in academia. And, you know, then the irony, too, of like he studied economics, like this is somebody who clearly he had a Ph.D. in it, like he very much understood and thought about capitalism and how it worked a lot and then ended up living kind of this interesting version of it. So I don't know. You know, he it took him 10 years and. I also interviewed his sons for the book, and um, they were incredibly helpful. And one of them, I can't remember, uh, I think, I I believe I included this in the book, but said, like, there was always a fight, right? There was always, like, they were protesting against Vietnam, or there was always a cause. There was always, like, this common push. And I have members of my family on both sides of the aisle where that that definitely is in the air. There's always, like, a, a bigger thing. And I think at one point it was Monopoly. Yeah. No, and it's incredible. Um, When you say one point in time, we're really talking about a decade or more he yeah, spent early 70s early 80s and then it kind of kept going you know even when the case ended 
on his case, I went through like all the news clippings I could about it over that time period. But um, when I came to the story in 2009, and I think this is an important thing for all of us to think about, there's kind of this idea that if it's not on Google, it doesn't exist as fact. And I'm here to tell you in 2009, this wasn't on Google and what was there was wrong or didn't make sense. And, you know, Ralph's story, I kept going back to, you know, the archives and the newspaper clippings and I would use microfilm and like dust off stuff and God bless librarians. Like there's so much stuff that isn't digitized that isn't there or isn't assembled on the internet. And the amount of stuff that we don't know, I think it's so dangerous to think we live in this era. Yes, the internet's amazing. We have access to all this information that we didn't before, but there's so much, like an incredible amount of thing, of information that isn't there or is wrong or isn't put together. And I just think that for me, that was like this constant lesson of going through the boxes of stuff that he had that were published in huge, you know, news outlets at the time. Like the New Yorker had done a big piece on him. Calvin Trillin did it actually. And, um, and it just like how he had this huge story that in the eighties got all this coverage and then kind of faded away in a weird way. And yeah. yeah. And people were still getting it wrong for, decades. Amazing. I mean, I think that that moment when you decided that you wanted to write this short piece, right, about about the Economic Times 2008 and uh, link it back to Darrow and the invention of Monopoly and then you thought, ah, oh, this doesn't quite sit right. You That moment led to you going back to Ralph Onspach, who also was like, wait a minute, uh, I don't know that Parker Brothers really has the right story around this monopoly, and began to, you know, through the legal battle, began to visit these households where they yeah. were pulling, like, like oil cloth representations, handmade DIY monopoly boards in order to show that the game had existed way prior to the Depression. And he really had to shoe leather it, man. I mean, finding people now is hard, but doing it back then. But the gift of his story, one of the gifts of it was that he had documents. You know, he had depositions. He had photographs. He had a mountain of paperwork on which he stood (laughs) to tell his story, which for my purposes was absolutely huge. And the other thing with those documents, this is true of a lot of particularly investigative work, is that they can help anchor your conversation and rejigger someone's memory and kind of center the way you're telling a story. And it just, it's a different ball game, no pun intended, sorry, bad sports metaphor, (laughs) but it's just a different um, process when you're putting a story together and you have these documents that, you know, Ralph was looking at them understandably through one lens, but then I would pick up something like these little details. Like, for example, one of the depositions, there's kind of almost a throwaway line about why Baltic and Mediterranean were the lowest priced on the board was because they were segregated neighborhoods. So if, you know, through the prism of Ralph's lawsuit, he didn't need to know that. But I thought that was fascinating. Like the idea that, you know, and then that led to all this research about how, you know, there was this huge migration of African-Americans from the South to the North and they were seeking better treatment in Atlantic City. Actually, that wasn't what was happening. And so there there are all these little nuggets and gems tied up in these things that you end up really getting caught up in. So, I mean, that's why the book took five years. I, I apologize it took so long, but it also... It never felt slow when I was doing it. It was just there was so much information. It felt so unwieldy. And I just had boxes of stuff. Just I moved apartments all the time. And it was like I owned clothes and Monopoly stuff. Like it was just just nuts. (laughs) I think it was five years really well spent because it's actually corrected now everyone's perception of what this game is, where it came from, why it was invented. Um, And it really kind of brought back to life those originating uh, kind of critiques of capitalism that that are part of the landlord's game, which then got um, turned into monopoly. So one of the things that I really like about 
um, your book is you that you do bring to life that journey, you know, that shoe leather, leather that Ralph uh, uh, burned by traveling all over the country to actually talk to people who at the time were fairly elderly. Um, mm. You know, they had been playing the game, uh, you know, a version of, of Monopoly for the last, you know, they were pulling out things that were 75 years old. Uh, and, 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 and you bring to life the fact that this game, that McGee's original vision kind of traveled and as it did, different groups, different intellectuals on the East Coast began to actually slightly change the game and, and make it relevant to their locale. And it did end up in Atlantic City. Yes. Um, beautiful, did, beautiful Atlantic City. <laughs> how did it get? How did it get to Atlantic City? What's yeah, that's a there? that's a great question. So, uh, you know, I've always seen Monopoly, like Lizzie McGee's patent, as kind of the trunk, and that has all these branches that grow off of that, right? And how much of that she was following, we don't really know. Um, but one of the groups, it kind of goes through these northeast circles of you know left wing intellectuals, and it's played at a lot of college campuses, and it's played this place called Art in Delaware, which was this kind of incredible single tax enclave. So it's being played in these communities where people come together and play it and they would go retreat to, you know, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, these other cities. So the Atlantic City version of the game comes up through the Quakers, which isn't surprising because the Quakers, you know, there's a lot of overlap between Quaker circles and some of these political groups. And, um, you know, people localize these boards. So if you were playing in Boston, you would put Boston Commons and, you know, things there, um, things that are there same with Chicago wherever so the idea that they would put Atlantic City properties on it um isn't isn't crazy and the the Quakers in Atlantic City that play the game are also teachers so they do some key things to make it a little bit easier for kids to play as well with adults and one of the things I think is so funny about the Atlantic City Quaker version of the game is that we think of Monopoly today as like this comically wholesome you know activity like what's more homespun than sitting around and playing a board game but um, in Quaker culture at the time, this is also kind of a, a piece that was um, in some of the Ralph Onspock depositions. Like people talked about how if you had dice that was considered to be uh, associated with gambling or vice, and that you know people would hide their Atlantic, you know their Atlantic City Monopoly boards and things. So I just thought that that was like so funny that you know the culture like we they were like kind of punk rock for their for their time like what they were and you would think god quakers playing monopoly is like edgy but it but in a way it kind of was and it had kind of this underground quality to it so yeah they um and one of the other quaker innovations is that um jesse rayford who's one of the early players was a realtor so he puts the property the fixed properties the prices on there so which is another way of simplifying the game too so yeah it's it's fun and i think it's such a visual marker of how people kind of product test and tinker as as time goes on yeah i think it's beautiful as a designer to think of a game that you might make um traveling from household to household community to community and actually getting uh getting kind of recrafted and redesigned so that it fits better the context in which it's being played i mean there's nothing better than that that's an homage to your original work um, and and one of the things I really liked about these punk rock Quakers uh, <laughs> and other phrases you don't hear every day yeah. is that is that they did they did change aspects of the game too um, to kind of more conform to maybe some of our childhood memories of Monopoly. They took out some of the loud auctioning elements right, of right, it, right? Right. Which I actually think is really fun now, but. Um, you know, silence is a key part of the the Quaker faith. So you know, downplaying the au- the auction piece not only makes it simpler but also makes it 
more Quaker, I guess is what, Quieter. I'm, what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Quieter. Um, but it also starts off this history, and I still argue with my family about this, of very Monopoly's a weird game in that um people don't sit and read the rules usually. you you learn it from uh somebody else in your family, you know, an older sibling or a parent, and a lot of people play the game wrong. And if you're playing it correctly by the actual written rules, it shouldn't take you more than, you know, 90 minutes or so. And I feel like when I tell people that, like, you can just see, like, their heads, like, explode. And um, anyway, I've written about that, too, um, because why not? I mean, once you're in the Monopoly beat, you might as well might as well own it. And so I, I think that that's – there's this early tradition of people kind of making it their own um, – you know, and sometimes make it into things that it wasn't ever meant to be. Yeah. But yeah. And one thing I was really struck by um, as we began to sit down and play uh, McGee's original Landlord's game, which thanks to a gentleman named Tom Forsyth, <laughs> uh, you can actually order online. Yes. Uh, which is very exciting. It's very um, new. You haven't been able to do that for a long time. You know, any any game designer, your first iteration of something um, certainly has a lot of room for improvement and refinement. And I always thought, well, Monopoly as it exists today must be a, you know, a sleek race car compared to Landlord's Game. But we actually found the game to be incredibly uh, yeah. fast and fun. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things we don't know is how much she tinkered with it before she got her patent. I'm assuming she did some of that. And she was also teaching. So I have a hard time believing that she didn't do some... We don't have evidence, right? We don't We don't know, really. I think there's one... She was... Um, I think I found something where she was talking about it in like 1902 or three. so that she, she was doing things with the games before then. But um, yeah, I, I think that it's like a lot of things you learn by doing and iterating. And um, I just have a hard time believing that especially now after we've played it, that there wasn't a lot of that in play before. Well, it really makes that originating story that your your book uh, kind of notes verbatim from that from the back of the Monopoly uh, box. Um, it makes that story of Charles Darrow, the Depression-era father who just was tinkering in his basement and came up, voila, with Monopoly even more implausible if you think about it. And I think that there's that's a big lesson, I think, of this story that um, I think we love light bulb moments. We There's a very American romance with, and I think this is true of writers too, of the idea of like, poof, all of a sudden you have this amazing idea. And I'm sure that might happen sometimes, but I think the truth about invention and innovating is that it's a slog and it's, you show up every day and you, you kind of pluck away and you get it wrong and wrong and wrong. And then it gets better, better, better. And I think from my experience, just covering business more than anything else, I think the people who are really honest about that um, and thank God, right? Because I, you know, I wasn't born a literary genius. I don't think I'm going to wake up one day and have the idea for the great American novel, but like I can wake up every morning and, you know, write, you know, 500 words or so. Like, I think that that's actually um, an important thing for all of us to think about. And the Darrow story, one of the reasons why I think it's stuck with us, even though now we have an incredible amount of evidence that points out that it's not true is it's so romantic, like it's so charming and it's so intoxicating, like who wouldn't want to believe it? And it's just such a powerful, um, you know, the other part of my brain that thinks about fiction and loves fiction is there's a power to it too sometimes. So, um, you know, there is there are these heroes of Monopoly, they just weren't necessarily the ones that we were being told about. <laughs> yeah, they were the ones that actually put in the work. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so, it turns out that uh, Lizzie McGee um, 
you know, did end up uh, reaching out, I guess, to Parker Brothers. She, did, They actually bought her patent for a small sum. Correct. Like, the best we know is um, $500 and then the commitment to make two other games that she had worked on. Right. And so she was excited because she mm-hmm. was all of a sudden going to get these games published that I think she'd reached out and try to get published earlier. Yeah. And, I, you know, later on in one of the depositions tied to Ralph's case, um, Robert Barton, who was the CEO then, by the time Ralph comes around as an older man, he's asked about this deal. And the language around it is so interesting because I think that there was this people kind of cast Liz McGee off as like this political nut job, you know. And at that time, you know, George's theory was really out of favor and... um but I, I think now, even more than 2015, uh, like the the reading of that is so interesting in terms of how easy it was for everybody to dismiss, you know, her as a creator. And I think that that, you know, one of the audiences of the book that I could never have predicted was um, women in tech. And I think that still and I've only covered sports and Wall Street. I've only covered male dominated worlds but that same. It can get really icky really quickly with, you know. Well, it's just, yeah, uh, you know, and and I think it's important when you look at the time period of not just the 70s, but the 30s and then, you know, the early 1900s, just the common thinking around women, you know, people really thought their brains were smaller and that they were dumber and that they like those were things that this is not like wingnut conspiracy theory talk like this is how a lot of people really felt about women and their ability to create things. So I think that. Lizzie had so much headwind <laughs> against her and trying to get anything done. It's kind of miraculous that she did get these patents, that she did get this game out there, considering just how awful it was for um, for women at the time. Well, um, uh, thank, thank God, because uh, I think these stories are really important. Um, and I think that, as you said, we need our North Stars. We need to know the real story in order to be uh, empowered uh, to speak our own. It's so interesting to think about how, um, you know, one of the, when I was, so I started reporting this in 2009, which was obviously a very dark time politically, um, and the key points of this story were at moments like the 1930s, the 1970s, and then later, bizarrely, when I came along, like that, that there's something about something cool to me about the idea of really good things can come from bad time periods <laughs> unintentionally. Right. Like it wasn't like a, any of those three eras we thought we were going to do anything really. But um, that's an important part, too, is kind of the resiliency of story and the stickiness of it. Um, which I have to zoom way out and remind myself of that because sometimes you you can, it's very easy I think to get bogged down in the weight of what you're looking at or what it means. But um, well, yeah. I like to I like to think um, uh, you know, in the book that I wrote with John Sharp, the most recent one, um, uh, is about the power of iteration as a way of mitigating failure. And failure is the thing that makes us notice stuff. You know, if the doorknob totally. falls off, you start to notice the doorknob, yeah. uh, you know, and I think that those moments, you know, the depression, the 70s, and then uh, the housing uh, financial crisis were moments where we all had to stop and say, hey, wait, what's going on here? Yeah, and I have an obsession with losing and failure, too. My next book is an essay collection I'm uh, co-editing with Louisa Thomas, a colleague of mine from The New Yorker called Losers, about losing in sports. And it kind of came about because, among other things, Louisa and I were like, we love writing stories about losers. We think they're these like rich veins. I mean, we were thinking more of sports, but I think it's true in anything. And it really makes people uncomfortable. Like editors don't want to do the stories. 
the really weird interviews, you know, the the locker rooms of losers are very empty, like people leave. And there's a taboo with that still, even though kind of Silicon Valley has taken up this, you know, preciousness around failure. I think that's like a little too simplistic. I think it's like a deeper thing. But that said, you know, personally or professionally, some of the best things in our life can come from that. So um, I think kind of the the original nuggets of that were in probably some of the Monopoly stuff. And it just, you know, a decade later, here we are. But um, what, I think it was my book agent or somebody was like, do you guys really want to be the loser, you know, correspondence? And I was like, hell yes. Like, <laughs> I am so excited about that. So oh, yeah. I've, we've all lost. All of us have been losers at some point or another. So absolutely. Yeah. Monopoly or otherwise. It's how we learn. Yeah. failure. It's how we learn. And it's how Finn, Alexander, and I learned that Mary Pilon is unbeatable at the landlord's game, which feels about right. Yep, she won. And if you're interested in seeing that entire gameplay unfold, you can find the video at FunGamesWithSeriousPeople.com. I want to thank Finn Brunton and Alexander King for playing the landlord's game with us. And I want to thank my special guest, Mary Pilon, the kind of journalist who just can't take a story at face value, especially when it sounds too good to be true. The big lesson from this incredible story is that great things don't just come out of nowhere, invented in basements in a day or two. From the landlord's game to the Quaker players of Atlantic City to your living room, Monopoly evolved from the hard work against all odds of Lizzie McGee and by the players who made their own homemade Monopoly boards and passed the game on to others. In the spirit of Ralph Onspach's epic battle with Hasbro, you can't monopolize Monopoly. Mary's book, The Monopolist, brings this entire story to life. I highly recommend it. If you'd like to play the Landlord's Game, Lizzie McGee's original version of Monopoly, you can get a limited edition copy, thanks to game researcher Thomas Forsyth at landlordsgame.info. Fun Games with Serious People is edited and produced by Colin Howorth, with videography by Yi Chen Ma. Our theme song, Rainbow, is by Chad Crouch. This series is made possible through a grant from the New School and Parsons School of Design, where I teach. Thank you for listening.